John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 104.HE1302, certificate number 53093, The Battle of Bamber Bridge. Come on. Oh, wait. Before we go in, let me tell you a little about an English pub. Do you enjoy, and I have never asked a question already so sure of the answer, do you enjoy watching World War II training films? Yes. <laughs> All right. No further questions. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I love, it reminds me of my childhood watching, um, watching armed forces commercials on the armed forces network, radio and television service, oh, of course. where they would strip, they would strip the commercials out of all the U S shows we got, but replace them with PDAs about, um, you know, everything from you should not, um, have, unprotected sex or rape anyone like mm-hmm. literally there would be ads like hey okanawa let's not rape prostitutes and you'd be like oh boy like what what's going what, on what, what had to happen for somebody to commission 10 of these ads and everything from that to like well don't put starch in your battle dress uniform as you know it's against code whatever and there'd be a fun a fun white guy rapping about how you don't want to starch your uh your bdus oh so these were not uh these they, they weren't even pretending to be television commercials these were like training films that they had repurposed like how to prevent vd they were 30 second ps i mean it wasn't I, it wasn't like um colonel potter was running these for us like these were 30 second psas in the form of you know a lot and a lot of them were stateside civilian bicentennial minutes and the like uh, and similar um but scattered in there were ones both obviously made somewhere central you know, Alexandria or San Diego had turned out some nicer looking ones and then just kind of cheesy ones made locally on the base in Korea. <laughs> uh, uh, by the by, the guys that joined the army to be in the audiovisual uh, battalion? That's exactly who they were. My parents yeah. had a bunch of friends of those guys because they were all in the base community theater. You'll be shocked to hear. Right. Where, um, where my family always was hanging out. And so these guys would always come over for dinner and bring the the radio plays they had made with a buddy when they were at Fort Dix or, you know, yeah. it was, it was an amazing scene. They all wore those birth control glasses. I bet. <laughs> there were actually quite a few of those. Does the army have specific frames you have to wear? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Well, did you learn about that last week? I know you were, you're uh, up on army etiquette right now No, as I, we record. Most of the people at the army war college were that wore glasses were were wearing uh, weirdly like glasses. It seemed like they got at the base PX, but not 
They weren't issued. Whereas back in the day, I think they issued you glasses and you wore them. You had to wear the <laughs> These are not your prescription, Private, but you will wear them. Uh, and and so for a while there in the in the two thousands, I acquired a bunch of those vintage Vietnam era, uh, like issued glasses frames, and I gave them to friends like Sean Nelson. I think from Harvey Danger wore birth control glasses that he got from me for five or six years. Was that the point? It's Saigon chic. Yeah, exactly. Saigon chic. Uh, but, but I, uh, I, I could never, I, I didn't, I didn't want to look like a guy that had just gotten his glasses at boot camp, So I never wore them myself. I can see why you wouldn't want to look like a guy who got his glasses at boot camp. No, I, w- I wanted to look like a guy who got his glasses at fighter pilot school. Not like Warby Parker. Who's, who's brought us this entry in the omnibus? Wait a minute, really? No. Have, are they sponsoring the show? Yeah, this is not actually the show. Oh, this is gonna... all this has all been a lengthy ad for. <laughs> I was going to be so psyched for getting Me? glasses in the mail. I've never had Warby Parkers, and uh, I think they did sponsor a show at one point that I did, and I never took advantage of the free swag because I couldn't figure out their I couldn't figure out their system. Also, I I don't think their glasses are very cool. You're the kind of person who probably gets a free code in your email and then finds it again 18 months later yeah. and is alarmed that it's expired. Yeah, that's me. But those old vintage training films are fun. So you, this was, you were in Korea during the be all you can be era of army recruiting. That's exactly right. Like there were the funny thing is there were a ton of army recruitment commercials on too, which you know <laughs> you're already in the army. Guess what? This is a captive audience. This is like those. Um, isn't there some? civilian equivalent of this like the, oh you go to the movies and there's an ad for like you know what you should do go to the movies yeah yeah we're already here nicole kidman uh but i have to guess that well there's just a bunch of dead air right i mean there uh, an episode of golden girls is only 21 minutes long that's the problem and so you've got to fill it with something and they could have just put on more shows but they didn't they still ran shows in half hour blocks for scheduling convenience exactly but that meant if there was a u.s two minute two second break they had to cut out all those ads for Febreze and um, Cinnamon Toast Crunch and put in their own ads for uh, military regulations and policies. Can you imagine what a cool world it would be if the Army closed-circuit television stations just aired 20-minute shows with no commercial breaks and then it, you know, it immediately would get off of the half-hour cycle and you'd be... In this yeah. weird 20 minute long. You turn on your cycle. TV at 7.30, Jeopardy's half over. You turn it on again in an hour and, you know, it's the middle of Big Bang Theory. I have a friend who was just describing, he he and his wife were divorced and they have a custody deal with their kids where they each get four days on and then four days off. Oh, he's got an eight day week. So they're... It's the French Revolutionary calendar. They're just tumbling through space where it's like, <laughs> okay, this week I give the kids back on Saturday and next week it's on it's Wednesday. Just like, it's like Ramadan or Yom Kippur moving through the solar calendar. Yeah, right. Except and, on a, I mean, every month. Every, all the time. You, I mean, how long would it be? You're the, hey, math kid, how long would it be before you caught up to the cycle? Again? It depends on what the shows are. If it's exactly 20 minutes, it, it aligns every hour. If it's 22 minutes and 36 seconds... It's uh, the heat death of the universe. <laughs> no, but I mean with the four-day custody <laughs> oh, thing. Oh, I how, see. How long would that take well, to play Well, just eight out? times seven, 56 every eight weeks. Every eight weeks. That be... would be seven of your cycles and eight of our of our Earth weeks. That's interesting. Right on, man. <laughs> That's so funny. 
yeah. I, but the funny thing is that's how people watch TV now anyway. You just turn on your right. TV and it would be more like going to the movies in 1936 and you just walk in a theater whenever because you've handed a you've handed a, a perky young lady a dime mm-hmm. and you walk into the theater and then you know, they're halfway through a Edward G. Robinson picture and you stay for that and then the newsreel and then the short and then the cartoon and then you watch the first half of the Edward G. Robinson picture. That's what we did in 1976 too. Did you never do that? That's because you were scofflaws <laughs> and they didn't have centipede in the lobby yet. So you, you just, had to go in. You walk in, you sit down and you watch the movie all the way through and then the next movie and then... No, I was never even a show up at the box office and watch whatever starting next. I was... Definitely a look through the paper. Oh yeah, kid. look through the paper because that's the best way to find out when a movie's going to start. You look at the newspaper from the night before when all the theaters mm. were telling you. I think in the seventies there was definitely a period where adults would take me to the movie theater at any time and just drop me off, give me the amount of a ticket, and say I'll be back. At some point. Your babysitter was Lowe's. <laughs> so you just go into the movies and stay there for a while, then come out and play play uh, Pac-Man in the lobby until your your parents show I up. I do remember more double features where you would sit in the same theater yeah. and it would just spool a second movie, Yeah, which is not happening anymore. Yeah, why does that? Oh, right. Why would you do that? Why well, would you give away a second movie? It's probably the beginning. It, I mean, it's the those were all single screen theaters. It's the the tyranny of the multiplex that got rid of that. It's just more efficient to keep showing the same movie in the same theater and charge again if they want to leave and see the a different movie. tyranny of the multiplex. That's my favorite Star Trek movie. I was So I was recently watching a training film from World War II. Well, wait called, a minute. You don't have to do it now. No. Is, it, is this just like you have a, it's like listening to classic radio. You're like, I'm going to go watch some training films. This one was recommended to me. I mean, basically it's um, everything... Old is funny because it's old. It's different and novel, you know. It's Where's the beef? In this case, it's even older. <laughs> if you can imagine a cultural artifact older than than Clara Peller saying, "Where's the beef?" How to Behave in Britain was released in 1943. Oh, I've seen How to Behave in Britain. See, see, it's you, great. I gave it a five star <laughs> review on Letterboxd. It stars no less than Burgess Meredith, yes, who was still you know 33 years away from. From uh, what, what is it? Crapping lightning or and thunder? What is what does he say when he's Mick and Rocky? Um, I'm gonna teach you to crap lightning and also crap a second crap, which is thunder. <laughs> What's the, I don't know what the line is. I don't either. Okay, I can quote The Godfather Part Two, but I can't quote Rocky. You skipped Rocky. I I you know I watched Rocky too much of a jock movie out of the side of my eye. Yeah, even uh, then. the but Burgess Meredith had a he always had a kind of homey, but he seemed smart. He's 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 got a almost a mid Atlantic accent. Yeah, especially in the 30s and 40s when all actors had to. Yeah, uh, he was. Um, yeah, in Ro- if you know him just from Rocky, you assume he's um, some Irish working class type, and that's not true. No. He's he's um, he's from the Midwest. He's from Ohio. He's from money. He was a big star on Broadway, and so when they made of Mice and Men in 1939, he. Uh, play ooh, george i think could he have played george instead? yeah he played george that's right he can't have played lenny and hey, that george. made him that made him a movie star i always think george is the dumb one yeah. because if you're doing the dumb one impression you say hey, george, george a lot yeah. tell me again about the rabbits george but george is the smaller fast talking smart one yes yeah spoilers he oh sorry shoots lenny <laughs> no I'm, I'm gonna spoil it <laughs> spoilers from the 1920s 
He's also, you know, Burgess Meredith is famously in Twilight Zone. He was the Penguin in Batman, and he's in a bunch of good Twilight Zones, specifically the one where he steps on his Warby Parkers. That's it. And thereby um, discovers that the apocalypse is not good, no. as he had assumed it was going to be, but a bummer. Although, you know, I've thought about that episode a lot, and it seems like you could teach yourself how to grind a pair of glasses pretty easily and just go to the local, you know, uh, optometrist and That's so you that your response is, um, <laughs> if that were me... I would learn how to smelt metal and blow glass. All that stuff. I mean, it's if you've got infinite time. Couldn't he just go to a bunch of empty, op, you know, abandoned optometrist offices full of bodies and try to find... Till he found the glasses that did the person. best. Yeah, the world is now full of a thousand pairs of glasses. Yeah, yeah that's exactly what he would have done. That's what immediately what he d- did in the sequel. They should, they should have done a reunion episode in the 80s Twilight Zone, where a now older Burgess Meredith, fresh off of Clash of the Titans and Rocky Three. Figures uh, it out. Figures it out. It's a, it's a whole episode about him silently making gla- or finding glasses. Yeah, he's he like walks around in a funk for a couple of days, and then he's like, wait a minute. But then it ends with the twist is it actually, even that guy would have been super unhappy living in a post-apocalyptic wasteland reading Dickens and Thackeray um, because it's literally the end of the world. And, yeah. And the fact that he has more time for reading is just rounding error compared to all the hardships and, and zombie gangs that await him. I guess it's... It's true that it, what it does is it asks the question, why do we read? Is it not to make the world a better place? It's not just onanistic. It's got to be for a reason. If you remember that episode, it strongly implies that he, it's just escapism for him. Yeah. He's got an awful um, mean boss and a shrewish wife, and he just wants to hide in the basement reading Dickens. But maybe if you're, maybe the secret is kill your mean boss and shrewish wife, then yeah. you don't need to read. You don't need the Russians. Yeah. You don't need missiles. No. No. No, you just need to murder two people instead of like 200 million. Let's assume that at maximum he has seven or eight people that irritate him. He can become a medium ambition serial killer. Yeah. Kill all seven or eight of those people. I mean, it's going to be tough because he might be the only commonality and all yeah, these bodies are going to yeah, be turning right. on. Why did uh, why, why did these random people get killed? Oh, <laughs> wait a minute. He needs to invite them to an event, arrange for the ceiling to collapse, and then, you know, hope that he can get away with it on on uh, sabotage grounds. There's another one. There's another option that I think about, which is, and I'm always confused why people don't, don't choose this option. Move to a neighboring town, <laughs> like put gas in your car and drive away from the, from the terrible place and go make a new terrible place somewhere. Uh, Burgess Meredith joined the army in world war two. Um, as a big Hollywood star, he was frequently, uh, Put out on loan or whatever from his own unit to because he was already in his thirties to make training films. Yeah, uh, let's see. He died in he made those grumpy old men movies in the mid nineties. I think he died in the late nineties. He would have been yeah he was born in nineteen oh seven. So he would have been in his mid thirties during World War Two. In this particular video, he plays an American telling our uh, fighting men and women, but at that time mostly men, stationed in Great Britain, how to be good guests. Of the British Empire. Don't rape prostitutes. It's essentially that, but in kind of a nicer way. Um, I mean, famously, there was a lot of raping going on uh, and quasi-raping going Even on. Now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, we, we think of the wholesome uh, servicemen overseas in Britain in the 40s. And in fact, the British were sick of the Americans. They famously oh. said they're overpaid. They're Yeah, just like today. <laughs> they're overpaid, oversexed, and over here. So the complaints would be that these guys had more money than anybody else in the village that they could flash around. 
They could use it to buy silk stockings and nylons for everybody's daughters and get the company that they were not getting at home. So it was a real disruption to British life, but particularly town and village life. Maybe Chamberlain shouldn't have appeased Hitler uh, in Czechoslovakia. Wow. Yeah. Blame the victim. How do you like, how do you like, how do you like it now? <laughs> I think we can all agree that this is mostly Hitler's fault. Right. And not some, you can't, you don't not blame some the yokel victim. from Oregon. But, you know, they could have stopped Hitler at Munich. They could have stopped Hitler in Munich. Uh, so it, I guess in, it, this is not. 1943. So by this time, the army, this is not preempted. The army is already aware that things have taken a bad turn in many parts of the United Kingdom. And they've dispatched none other than our secret weapon uh, in World War II, Burgess Meredith, yeah. to tell the boys to, to be on their best behavior. To explain to the Americans, like, model yourselves after the British in India. See how beloved they were. <laughs> Well, that's a funny thing, you know, because we're going to get into questions of uh, race in particular here, which comes up in this Burgess Meredith video. And it's not like the British were, bl- I mean, at the, at the same time this video is made, the British are orchestrating the Bengali famine and killing 3 million people in India. Uh, I mean, not, not orchestrating on purpose, but through bad leadership and hoarding and inflation. They don't care if 3 million Bengalis die. They're well, not good on the Irish. They're castrating gay people. It's not. Uh, quaint, enlightened uh, village society full of church socials, but the key, Jum- jumble sales. The key to the to the film has to be that the army is not running a sociology experiment. The army is making this film because it feels that there's an expedient need to have the British not turn on them. That's exactly right. Uh, and if you watch, like some of my favorite uh, movies from this period are propaganda movies ordered by the British War Cabinet to. A, to appease relationships between the, you know, the special relationship forming between Americans overseas and their British hosts, because it was a legitimate uh, morale problem for both civilians and, and soldiers alike. Yes. Uh, in this video, it's a funny video. You should, you should watch how to behave in Britain. Uh, there's a lot of little light comedy to keep the soldiers watching. It's under 40 minutes, but that's for a training film. That's pretty long. Probably drags. Yeah. Um, Bob Hope shows up. A lot of it is just, here's what you do in a pub. You know, this is not a saloon from back home. These are people that just, you know, unspoken is do not come here and get drunk and as fast as you can and get rowdy. This is a place where people without a lot of discretionary income will they get ner- drunk really slowly. Will nurse and will stay <laughs> drunk exactly all afternoon. <laughs> they just want to sing and talk loudly for six hours and they don't need you, Joe, um, with your, with your flashy Brooklyn ways, right? <laughs> uh, messing up the darts game. So they've got a video where a couple of Americans walk into a, a, a village pub and they immediately make fun of the Scottish soldiers' kilts. They disrupt a board game. They, uh, you know, they're they're uh, aggressive to a barmaid. You know, and Meredith just makes them disappear. Yeah, in they a puff of turn smoke. their mega hats on backwards and start <laughs> talking about taxation. They they make the jukebox play Lee Greenwood. Uh-huh. Um, Burgess Meredith makes them disappear in a cloud of smoke. He apparently has uh, superpowers oh, in this universe. Right. On I don't know what what number Earth this is where Burgess Meredith can make uh-huh. can make naughty GIs. I don't know if he kills them or if they reappeared back on base in an MP cell. It's not clear. It's an interesting alternate universe where World War II is still being fought. Burgess Meredith does not use his magic <laughs> to like become a super weapon. He could instantly. Make Hitler disappear in a cloud yeah. of smoke from the butler from the bunker and reappear in a in an allied yeah. Why don't we jail? parachute him into Germany if he can do this and send him around? You know, 
like make Goering appear at the bottom of the ocean. Like move tanks so they run over their own soldiers. All you'd have to do is move a tank like eight feet every uh, every few minutes, and that battle is over. <laughs> Instead, he's in this pub meddling with people that are having a good time. Yeah, a perfectly good time. Yeah, those kilts are kind of funny yeah, when you hey, think about it. Give me more beers. The video goes out. Uh, he goes to great lengths in the film to point out that your beer will be warm. Oh my god! They don't ask. Don't ask for ice here. So the first time I uh, went to Ingling, uh, when I was not yet 21, uh, I went into a, a little pub in the town that was, the, the little town called Pretty England, south of Bath. My mother's maiden name was Pretty. And she thought that I should go to Pretty because it seemed like that might be where we're from. There's no genealogical evidence of this. We had no no proof, but Pretty was her name, and, and Pretty was her town. Pretty, and Pretty oh, was her game. This is nice. And so I'm out there, you know, I'm wandering around England. And I'm like, okay, I'll find Pretty. It's it's just it's seriously got a maypole in the square. There's sheep all around it. It's there was one pub, you know. It's just a yeah. crossroads, and it took me a while to get there because I was hitchhiking and sort of like. Hey, can you take me to Pretty? And they're like, I can get you close. And I went into a pub and I ordered a beer and I had never had a warm beer. And I didn't. Did it, was it life changing? And no, no, no one had prepared me for it. Like it. No Burgess Meredith had appeared to be like, these cheese and pickle sandwiches will not be delicious, <laughs> but you will eat them, soldier. <laughs> it had never been explained to me. And so, you know, I was like, can I have a beer? You know, I'm. I'm a pretty, you know, and everybody in England is like, yeah, yeah, right. You nope, know. nobody was hoisting. <laughs> <laughs> no. Glasses to your... Every American that goes to England is like, I'm from here. I came... My people are from England. And I had this beer and it was uh, it was just like... It was basically eating a loaf of liquid bread, mm. uh, except like, uh, like bread right out of the oven. And uh, oh, it was appalling. It took me a long time to, to learn to like it. It's You've never had a beer, so, so this is meaningless. I assume you, it's but. still appalling. You've just had to... Accustom yourself, one of like a thing, citizen of the globe. One of the things about alcohol is it's terrible. Also, <laughs> coffee is terrible. These are things that we convince ourselves. Uh, are the problem bad. with coffee is it smells good. It does. Like oh, there's so many drug, uh, really uh, alcohol. Beer smells bad. Yeah. Weed smells bad. Yes. Coffee. That's why it's the devil's. That's why it's the foot in the door. It smells like chocolate from Lucifer himself. Yeah. It smells good. Uh, yeah, Burgess also warns people, you know, they're going to wa- ask if you want a bitter or a mild. I don't know. Feel, figure it out. <laughs> the bitter is bitter and the mild is mild, I guess. He clearly doesn't care that much. No. But the, the most noteworthy part of the uh, film, he's um, he's getting off a train with another GI and a woman on the train. He's in uniform. The woman on the train is talking to both of them and, and says, oh, what a lovely chat we had. I hope you'll come visit us when you're next in the village. We'd love to have you over for tea, and perhaps we could see the flower show, you know, or whatever. It's was some... it Graham Chapman in a dress? <laughs> it was, it was, <laughs> I think. No, it was just a Miss Marple type. Stone um, him, stone, stone him, stone him. Uh, and the interesting thing is that the other soldier with Burgess at this point is black. He's an African-American soldier. And, and she's perfectly friendly to both of them and wants them all to come over. And the point of this part of the movie is to let white GIs know that this is going 
to happen. So after the this, British people are not racist. British people are going to be less racist, and you can't let it. it I know, but you can't it's let it freak you out. You can't let it throw <laughs> you off your game. He he, uh, conspiratorially. That's not how you say that. He conspiratorially, conspiratorially. There we go. Move the eye. He turns to the camera and says, "You know, he just kind of shrugs, like, well, look, man. What do you know? I, I mean, it's." <laughs> It's black like, people can go to restaurants here. He he calls the black soldier throughout um, a colored boy, yeah. which obviously not ideal. At the time, colored would have been sensitive. You know, even at the time, I, I think I would have struck boy. It's it's not great. This this guy's in his. Boy this guy's has, around thirty. But boy also has a lot of connotations that then would have been significant, right? It's not just an accident that he's saying boy. No, I, I think, and you'll see later in the movie, things are very coded to be like, and here's something for the most racist 10% watching this, and here's something for the... So, you know, he, he just explains in kind of uh, euphemistic terms, you know, there's less social restrictions at home, uh, over here. Social restrictions. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, it's a, like it's just a... <laughs> An arbitrary matter of which fork to use. Raping is still out, <laughs> right. but um, that what you just saw might not happen at home. But hey, we're not at home, you know. And uh, different different customs, you know. Uh, uh, when in Rome, essentially. So no, huh? Okay, go on. And he never and he never specifically says anything like, you know, at home you would never want the races mixing because that leads to you know he he just says. You know, in kind of euphemistic terms, we have social restrictions. The place where you're stationed in Britain might not. And what does the black soldier, what, does his face betray anything in this moment? He gets no agency, whatever. He if, doesn't look into the camera and give, <laughs> give two thumbs up? He doesn't look at the camera and give like a Jim Halpert face like, yeah, I know. Like, if, if any of you are watching this from the truck battalion, uh, I'm really sorry. Uh, no, he, uh, in fact, he, um, he, I mean, he has a nice moment. M- you know, Meredith just treats him like a... Like a peer, it turns out neither of them have cigarettes, and the guy's like, oh, I'll go buy us some cigarettes, and that gets him out of the movie. <laughs> um, because I think a certain segment of the audience has already had to look at a, a black person for a, a, a while and is getting nervous. <laughs> he doesn't turn to the camera and go, this is why James Baldwin moved to Paris. <laughs> See, the, I think the, the thing is the average white soldier, whether they're from uh, Tennessee or Arizona or Massachusetts, has no idea that there's a thriving European intellectual scene that welcomes America's great black artists. Right. This and is, they, why this, is they? this is maybe in the, in the New Yorker, but your average GI is shocked that the whole world is not um, Jim Crow all the time. Well, and a lot of that like vibrant African-American diaspora into Europe came after, after the, the war, war right? Yeah. Because it was that this was the exposure that they were like, wait a minute. I mean, not entirely. I think yeah. a lot of the jo- Josephine Baker Jazz Age stuff is yeah, before. Yeah, right. That's true. But you're right. Uh, this is kind of the the beginning of James Baldwin being like, or and a bunch of people being like, wait, I was treated like crap over here and not over there. Uh, the scene goes on. I think um, I think Burgess heads into uh, the the little canteen or whatever it is at the station and says, look. Let's go talk to General Lee. Wait a minute. <laughs> the ghost of Robert E. Lee appears. Do you, do you, do you mean a, like a, a Dodge Charger? Let's go speak to this car with a stars and bars on it. No, he actually, he, he actually says, well, look over there at the bar. It's, it's General Lee of the, of the Supply and Service Corps or whatever, you know? Yeah. And, and it's this white guy. And then Burgess makes two points. One, hey, you know, um, 
you know, he oversees a lot of these of these um, of these uh, colored soldiers, giving us sub- logistical supply and support over here. But also, his fa- his grandpappy fought with the Confederacy. So it's 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 uh-huh. it's stated, but not Im- it's implied, but not stated that this is a direct descendant of Robert E. Lee. Oh, so he's now going to speak to our Southern white troops with some authority. Okay. So Burgess goes up to him and says, "You know, what do you think about this, General Lee?" And generally, maybe, turns to the camera and goes, "States' rights." <laughs> well, I think he might be a real officer because he's not a good actor. Oh, uh-huh. he turns to the camera and gives some prepared spiel about how, well, you know, this isn't about what you think. It's it's really about a promise that we've made that that uh, people of all of all colors and creeds are going to get a fair shake in today's army as we fight tyranny at home and abroad. And he's referring to, I think, the 1940 Selective Service and Training Act, which. By, by FDR's signature said that um, basically the army's not integrated, but black soldiers get a fair shake and they get the same opportunities that a white soldier would. The same opportunities to work in the kitchen. Well, that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, in practice, this did not happen. You know, the, the Tuskegee Airmen and the Red Tails were the exceptions. In fact, of the 2.5 million um, black kids who signed up for selective service, most of them weren't inducted just because the chain of command was like, no, thank you. And of the 1.5 million who did serve, a huge number who did serve, the vast majority were in kind of secondary, less prestigious support roles. Um, still dangerous, um, you know, still grueling and difficult work. Um, they were not, you know, many, many on or near the front lines, but none Doris of- Miller out there shooting them, shooting them down. Uh, that's the Pearl Harbor guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know how I know that? How? 1980s Army PSAs. <laughs> you, you will not imagine, you can, you can imagine how many of these highlighted the um, the, the few examples of, of representation that the Army could point to in, yeah. in its history. Um, because in the 80s, it was a much more diverse Army, obviously. Um, General Lee says, you know, we've made a promise to these men. And I think at this point, um, our friend has come back with the cigarettes. And so he can kind of be used as a... A visual he, aid. He, he he waves his hand at yeah, him. The, the, We've made a promise to these men. To, to these people. Fellows? These, <laughs> these fella, fellers? <laughs> what do you mean by your kind, General? <laughs> and he kind of frames it as like, a, and this goes both ways. You know, it's kind of a, we all need to be more, uh, you know, respectful and live and let live with the other fella. You know, so as if it were a, an equal problem on both sides. <laughs> sure. That the black soldiers had been very unwelcoming of their sure. of their white superiors. Um, Stop mentioning that 40 acres, damn it. We're tired of hearing about it. And then Meredith and his um, his African-American uh, compatriot share a cigarette. But they literally bring in a... a like one cigarette? <laughs> yeah, it's very they pass sexy. pass it back and forth? It's very sexy. <laughs> Do they French inhale? <laughs> they literally bring on a, a southern, a white... So a white old plantation southerner to say, well, this is just, this is what's got to happen if we're going to beat the Nazis, boys. Like, um, you're, we, you're sometimes going to have to have dinner with a local lady who doesn't hate black people as much as you. Your country has made a, and it's funny how they frame it. Your country's made a commitment and hey, the unsaid, we might all disagree with it, but that's just how it is in this man's army. Um, and of course, it was a tough war for a lot of these for a lot of these 1.5 million kids. One of the most famous stories was a, a, a colonel, a black colonel named Rupert Trimmingham um, told a story about being at some camp in Louisiana where German POWs were being housed. 
And this is kind of the beginning of the story you may know about him observing firsthand that these German POWs were treated better than the um, black servicemen at the same base. Yeah. Um, essentially, it, it became a segregated Jim Crow post where the Germans were white, so they got to eat with the white um, officers and enlisted men. They They got to use the same latrines and drinking fountains, and the black soldiers were literally getting treated worse than... Nazis. And this was the kind of thing that, and uh, it was a very much a purposeful humiliation, you know, like we want you to see that the POWs are a rank above you, presumably. Uh, and the Germans were smug about it and, and the, all the soldiers could sense this. Uh, this made, you know, he told the story enough that it made news first in the black press. And then in, uh, I think he wrote to an army paper, you know, to an armed services magazine. And then it, it got out and it was eventually fictionalized in, you know, the Saturday evening post or something and made a lot of comment because for a lot of, even for a lot of kind of wishy-washy liberals at home, this was, or, or even non-liberals, this was a step too far that, that Nazis of all people were getting nicer food and, and cigarettes, whereas, you know, these black servicemen were not. Ken, if we here at Omnibus were going to hire uh, some employees, which we probably should do. Let's hire like 30 people today. If we hired 30 people, how would we begin to manage all those employees? Neither you nor I want to be in the HR business. Just onboarding them, you know, doing all the training and stuff they need, doing continuing feedback so you can continue to monitor their performance. I have no idea what the current compliance issues are. How often do employees get breaks? How? What happens if they don't come to work for weeks at a time? All the regulatory stuff. What are we going to do? Are we going to hire at 30 people and an HR department? Well, let me tell you what. HR issues can kill a small business, and HR expenses could drive us right into the ground. $80,000 a year, right, to pay an HR manager? Well, that's the average, but here in Seattle... A lot more than that. So what do we do, John? Solve my problem that you just invented. Well, <laughs> here's what we do. We hire Bambi, which is to say that for $99 a month, we employ Bambi.com to uh, act as virtual HR managers for our company. Virtual. They're available by phone, email, and chat. So they can run all the ongoing HR stuff that our 30 new employees will require for onboardings, terminations, because we're going to fire a lot of them. 30 is just too many people. Uh-huh. Uh, all their HR managers are based in the United States. They're all experienced HR managers that understand uh, business nuances across all 50 states. They can customize their policies to fit your business or our business in this case. They have an autopilot product that automates a lot of what an HR department would do. So, you know, policies, training, feedback, all that stuff just gets taken care of by itself. I, I think we should do it. I think we should hire these 30 people. I think so, too. And I think we will join their thousands of active clients and thousands, and we'll end up giving thousands of five-star reviews. You and I, together. If you are looking to hire... 30 people like John and I are schedule a free conversation with Bambi today. And just, you'll be amazed at how much they can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com slash omnibus right now. That's B A M B E E.com slash omnibus. Bambi.com slash omnibus. What's interesting is that England is marginally less racist than the United States, but also extremely racist. 
So the interesting thing in the 40s is that this is five years before the Windrush generation, before West Indian immigration to the UK begins in earnest. But there would have been a lot of, of Caribbean and African people living in in England at the time. I guess not enough of a critical mass that threatens the majority. Like, if your theory of racism is LBJ's, which is that the people at the bottom of the ladder need to feel like they have somebody to kick. I'm, I'm sure that's not what he said. It probably his, his version he said had, it in some homely, homey uh, aphorism. His version maybe had the, uh, something about a horse's penis in Listen it. Listen to me, boy! Who knows? He's probably... But he's talking to another congressman. And he's three inches away from Everett Dirksen's <laughs> nose at the time. Um, Truly a hero. Like, if that's what you believe, that... Um, that people can be kindly about racial differences and, and avert their prejudices when it doesn't threaten their job or their sense of their own social status. Right. But as soon as they feel like, what's all this then? Well, now there's, now there's 10 of them. There were only, now there's a hundred of them. There, there were only 10 of them a week ago. They're taking our jobs. These Italians are taking over our neighborhoods. These Irish are taking well, over our jobs. <laughs> Look, we all know. Listen, I'm not racist, but the Italians are taking over this neighborhood. I'm just saying that this was a time when your average British person probably hated the Irish, hated, uh, you know, was all in favor of still true. starving 3 million, you know, Bengal farmers. Probably still true. Um but had no particular animus against black people because it's kind of like the entry we did about the Ghanaian kid who wants to go to Greenland. Right. This is the only one their village has ever seen. And what a curiosity, what a, what a treat it would be to have him over and hear his story. Um, they presumably know enough about American segregation to think, ah, this is, this is a problem that our culture, we can feel superior about because our culture does not have at the moment. Um, so they can feel good about themselves by inviting somebody over to tea. And, um, it appears to help that the black GIs are super, well, for one thing, they're super cool. They know how to jitterbug. Yep. All the young people are excited because they symbolize jazz and swing and everything that already means cool to, it to, even to young British people. It was cool in Weimar, Germany. It's cool to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm jitterbugging right now. But you just said those jazz cigarettes smelled bad. <laughs> yeah, I guess I draw the line too. The other thing is that they're super well-behaved. Like, they are the only soldiers that are not catcalling the village girls. And it's not because they are all noble Sidney Poitiers. No, they know. It's because they would get lynched back right, home. Yeah, right. so they are super careful because of this forced docility that Jim Crow has imposed upon them. But that really plays well in these little British villages because, I mean, George Orwell famously wrote... Um, the general consensus of opinion, you know, he's talking about how badly behaved all the Americans overseas were. The general consensus of opinion seems to be that the only American soldiers with decent manners are Negroes. So this was just what everyone observed. Like, these are the good ones. Right. Um, and, but that was not true in the army. You know, I, I was reading a, there's a famous quote from a, a GI who was doing, a black GI who was, who was on the beaches at D-Day doing whatever kind of support work his battalion was allowed to do who says you know our biggest enemy was our own troops always you know they felt like they were fighting two wars and honestly they had to it was 10 white officers for every german that, that worried them for sure and even when they got back home you know there's famous cases like um and this is the case this probably helped troop this is probably what led to truman integrating they got back home and they were treated they kind of expected that baseline level of respect that we were talking about in europe and it was as bad as ever at home or worse because the white racists were like, okay, we got to make sure that just because these kids are in uniform, does they don't think they're better than us or they can change anything. 
the famous case was a guy named Isaac Woodard going home just to see his wife after being, um, after being let out of the army, he heads back to Winsboro, South Carolina, asks a Greyhound bus driver to pull over so he can use the restroom, the restroom, the driver, you know, is, is predictably unfriendly to this black passenger asking a favor. Um, the Isaac Woodard is not taking any crap after coming home from war and tells the driver what's what. Um, the driver calls the police. Um, Woodard gets taken to a South Carolina prison and a police officer blackjack gouges out his eyes with a blackjack, ah, which is not you know, a sharp implement, a black, oh, a blackjack. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a little leather sap, right? Yeah, I How guess, do you gouge out somebody's eyes with it? I mean, gouging's more of a, <laughs> terrible. It's, it was awful and the pictures were awful and they made, you know, the, you know, it became an NAACP creed core and, um, and was one of the facts that led to Truman integrating the army. So a tough experience for these a lot of these 1.5 million service members. Um, but in Britain, the army had actually requested that troops be segregated. They had, they had gone to the British government and said, we'd like to keep our troops separate at all times like we would at home. And the war cabinet actually refused to, to enforce it. They didn't want that hassle. Um, so you had the cases of these... Um, what they would have called at the time Negro service members wandering these villages, going to pubs where they were generally pretty welcome. They would get in invitations to people's homes. They, you know, everybody wanted them to come to church on Sunday. Except what, getting in fights with other American soldiers, presumably. That's right? what's going to happen here. Yeah. Like it, everything back in the base was much less hunky dory, but in town, the villagers would tend to side with them when they were treated badly. Um, a bunch of nice old, ladies and codgers from the village would write letters to the paper complaining about how we saw this um, nice young man mistreated. Um, there was a serviceman named Leroy Henry uh, who had been who had been falsely uh, accused of rape and sentenced to death. Um, half of all the half of all the US servicemen executed during World War II were black despite the fact that only you know they were a t- 10% of the army and almost none in combat roles. Um, and it was largely this kind of uh, anti-miscegenation policing, I think. The Henry guy was innocent, and it led to a massive petition campaign in the UK. Um, all the, the good people of Bath writing to the U.S. Army, writing to the, the, the War Department and the U.S. government saying this man was innocent. And in the end, President Eisenhower actually... Uh, what can the president do? Pardon him? Commute it? Pardon him, I think, yeah. Um, so in general, the locals in, the, in, in Britain would side with the, the much put upon African-American soldiers. So we jump from Burgess Meredith to the other great 20th century Burgess, Anthony Burgess. Um, long before writing A Clockwork Orange, he was a... Uh, Wait a minute, is this a connections? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> this is going to be all people named Burgess. Unfortunately, there's only two. Yeah, uh, He was stationed in a little town uh, in Lancashire during the war called Bamber Bridge. It's outside of Preston. Uh, not that far from, um, I don't know, what else is even up in there in Lancashire? That's the thing. It's outside n- of Preston, which is outside of... Nothing. I mean, it's closest to Liverpool, I yeah. guess. I mean, 4,000 holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. Uh, I guess Blackburn. Blackburn's the big city there up go. there. I, I got there eventually. Thank you. you. Did. Thank, Thank you, John you uh, The uh, He was stationed there during the war, and he wrote 
uh, I think in the late 40s, about an incident he recalled where the local officers had come in and told the three pubs in Bamber Bridge that they were not allowed to serve black soldiers. Black, black soldiers. American. Yeah, soldiers. black American soldiers. And, and this, again, it's, there's not a lot, it's not a Britain where every village has a few like West Indian guys. Like these were the only black people for miles around. I mean, I guess until you got to the port in Liverpool, probably. Uh, because the, they would have to segregate. And all three pubs agreed, okay, we'll segregate. And they put out signs that said, black soldiers only. Woo! <laughs> 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 uh, so this is the story that got told for many years as background to what happened in June 1943. Uh, on June 24th, 1943, there was a little thatched roof pub in Bamber Bridge at one of these, the Burgess probably remembered pulling the black soldiers only gambit called the Old Hob Inn. And on that night, there were, um, uh, you know, a fair group of people drinking at the pub. There was a large group of African-American soldiers from the nearby 1511th Quartermaster Truck Company. How, how would you say that in the Army if it's a four-digit number before the before the fifth? Is it the 1511th? Is it the 1511th? On, on MASH, they say the 4077th, but that's not helping me here. Is it the 1511th Quartermaster Truck Company? I think... I think that's what I would say, but I was never in the army, so so I don't think fifteen eleventh, but maybe I don't know what's better. One thousand five hundred. There's no way they're saying one thousand. The the, no, the 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 artillery would hit before they got through with the syllables. One five one oneth. Yeah, it's one five one oneth. <laughs> Let's say fifteen eleventh. That sounds that sounds cool and tough. So ten guys from the fifteen eleventh Quartermaster Truck Company are enjoying a beer with some local villagers. Um, Last call has just passed, which apparently is 10 p.m. at yes. the time. That and, was and maybe to this day, true right? Until now, it might, yeah. Is it 11 now? I'm trying to remember. No, I think bars close at 10. Yeah, I was very surprised when the pub on the corner near where I was staying last time in London was, we were walking back from a show or whatever, and it was shut up tight at, at 10.30 or whatever. There's this whole, I think, social theory that what happens in England, why there are so many drunk rowdies is that bars close at 10, and so everybody... Spends the last hour in the pub just throwing down, and then they're all trashed. Whereas if they left them open until two, you know, you have that attrition of people gradually wandering off. The incident here starts when a group of of people, some villagers, but also soldiers, begin pestering the barmaid for for one more round. You know, one more round of pints. Come on, and she won't do it. Uh, Sharon or whoever won't do it because it's it's just it's after rules. ten. Yeah, um, she's being a good barmaid. Uh, and one, and uh, eventually, um, I think some MPs from nearby Preston see that the pub is getting rowdy and they come in to try to settle everybody down. And they see that one of the black soldiers, one private Eugene Nunn is not in his class A uniform. He's wearing a field jacket. Oh, okay. Uh, which I guess is a pretty big Out of uniform. Yeah. You're in town. And he doesn't have a pass. So he's over two. In town without a pass and uh, not in his uniform. So they arrest him. Now, I have to say, I don't have numbers here, but I would imagine that he was far from the only soldier drinking in a pub that night in a British town without a pass and not in uniform. It was, my guess is in a lot of these places, it was not uncommon, but he was not white. So it's quite possible that his the arrest was a little swifter than it would have been otherwise. Were most of his companions white? 
Or was he in a uh, white MPs and no. a group of black? This soldiers? truck company is, I think, uh, uh, like a hundred percent black enlisted men, and then nearly all white officers. Um, and but he's drinking with a bunch of uh, British women from the Auxiliary Territorial Service, so white um, British ladies, ladies. Um, and the, and the, the villagers and the British women are all, they immediately back none. Oh come on, you know we were all asking for a drink. It was all a bit of fun. There's actually nobody's actually making any trouble. He wasn't. What are you, why are you arresting him? He wasn't doing anything. Um, and maybe even uh, you know like it, it's it's commonplace to to just be in a pub having a drink at, at nine p.m. You know like this is this is uh, uncannily like a scenario you might see play out in America today. <laughs> exactly like a guy not doing anything getting arrested and then a bunch of people standing there being like, like what are you doing why would you arrest him and then it just gets crazier and crazier it gets just crazier and crazier and that's what happens here uh as the mps leave with private nun um the soldiers the villagers and the uh members of the auxiliary territorial service the women and again this is maybe one thing that sparks the F- the mps is that these these black soldiers are having a good time with these white British women. Sure. Which, no, no, no. No. Um, and a bottle gets thrown at the windscreen of the MP's oh, Jeep. Uh-oh. But unlike uh, contemporary American police, they don't jump out and shoot everybody. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> they do They do drive off, but they decide to come back with reinforcements. The GIs, meanwhile, all head back, you know, walk back to Adams Hall, the, the camp um, near town, which is their base. But the MPs, now with reinforcements, follow them back, and at this point, things start to escalate. Oh, so they don't go back to the Hob Inn and, no, they are, and bust they, the girls. They follow the GIs back to the base. I think the GIs maybe and the girls are just kind of, you know, leave the pub at the same time. It's already been last call. Um, they are, they're they're going to they're gonna be good and walk back to base. But the MPs follow them, um, feeling harassed. The soldiers, who, again, have had a few... Um, they begin to uh, throw bottles and cobblestones at the MPs, and the MPs fire on them. Oh. Uh, killing, pr- uh, shooting a private William Crossland in the back and killing him. So now this, um, you know, these 10 guys who just want to drink and MPs trying to bring in the one who's there without a pass have turned into a dead black man on the streets of Bamber Bridge. So when the... Um, when the men from Adams Hall get, you know, th- this is all, this is happening very near the camp. When they get back to the, when the men from the quartermaster truck company get back to the, the old one, five, one, one, they tell everybody what's, ha- what's happened and rumors begin to spread. And now, so now you've got what, a hundred black uh, soldiers um, worried about what's going to happen. And they all go for their rifles. Oh boy. They, they, they head for the armory and everybody arms up. It's like the movie Taps. It's turning into a full-fledged mutiny, yeah. There is one black officer, apparently, in this truck company, a black second lieutenant, who is able to kind of broker some peace and talk the men down and say, no, 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 we're going to figure this out and take care of this. Um, It's not what you think. Please don't do this. It's going to end badly. The men stand down until uh, just about an hour later at midnight when... The MPs, having got still further reinforcements from Preston, pull up in a convoy of jeeps um, that they've kind of 
that are, are now kind of makeshift armored vehicles. They've attached a machine gun. So no one, one has the taught them de-escalation techniques. No, particularly on you know this side. And you'd think again, this would not happen. They would not pull up at a white camp um, with a machine gun bolted to their jeep after you know. Yeah, the problem is over now. It's they're just now they want get back. At this point, the reports are pretty confused, but we have um, you know dozens of armed uh, soldiers. And a improvised armored car. Um, in one account, the MPs, uh, the men leave the base with the rifles uh, in pursuit of the MPs. In one account, the the MPs set up a roadblock and ambushed them. Um, the soldiers warn all the villagers to stay inside uh, because they know what's going to happen. And in fact, it does. A firefight breaks out. Oh. between a machine gun and all these rifles in the town of Bamber Bridge in Lancashire, which lasts for four hours. Whoa! Four-hour firefight. Till, in the, till in the four in the this, morning. That, yeah, until four in the morning in the streets of this thatched roof village. Nobody else dies apart from Private Crossland, who killed in the initial clash. Um, well, you have to say that the, that, the, uh, that the black soldiers were part of a truck company. <laughs> <laughs> that, does, that doesn't explain the MPs. The aim. MPs just can't control the machine gun because they bolted it to the back of a Jeep. They're all on a shooting broomstick. like stormtroopers. Yeah, maybe neither side the uh, you know the elite the elite troops. Um, but seven people are injured. Uh, it makes news eventually all over the world, but it's really played down. Oh, you know, a thing I didn't mention is this is June 1943. And this is just, and this isn't, this doesn't come up in any of the accounts of the report. The, the newspaper accounts are all very whitewashed and just, just play it off as a little clash, uh, you know, rowdy soldiers sure, drink a, f- a fun little scuffle. In some of the accounts, race is never even mentioned. Although in the U S papers, it is pretty much like black soldiers face off against white MPs and mutiny attempt. Um, but June 24th was just days after a massive race riot in Detroit. There were five big race riots in America in the summer of 1943. The Zoot Suit Riot will probably be an omnibus entry at some point. I'm surprised um, it hasn't been. I know, right? The one in Detroit, uh, I mean, the underlying causes are pretty clear, and they're honestly not that different than today. Um, in the case of Detroit, though, specifically during the war, you had this mass African-American diaspora coming north to take all these wartime jobs which led to new classes, clashes in what had previously been uh, wider immigrant neighborhoods. You know, the, uh, it was also the Italian and the Czech guys who felt like they were being pushed out by this new immigrant class. Um, in the case of the Detroit riots, I think a rumor had incorrectly spread that um, white cops had killed a black mom or a, uh, and or a baby. Um, but the underlying causes were, you know, everybody knew the cases of police brutality that had happened, the, um, you know, corrupt, law, corrupt uh, officials and law enforcement. Anyway, massive, uh, massive riot breaks out. Uh, you know, the whole, basically the whole black part of town bur- uh, of this neighborhood burns down. Um, and this would have been on the, this would have been in the papers and would have been on the minds of the black soldiers drinking that night in, in Lancashire just a couple days later. Right, of course. So there's tensions from across the globe that are playing into it as well. I don't think that timing is a coincidence. Um, but in the months to come, there are court martials held um, first for the four for four men. For, uh, in the first case, four men are convicted from the initial clash in and around the the pub. Um, in the second trial, twenty eight men get convictions result from the later uh, 
uh, clash in front of Adams Hall and then in the streets of the firefight in the streets of Bamber Bridge. Any of them the white MPs? No, uh, none of the defendants are defendants. Are they called defendants in a military trial in a court martial? I don't know. Um, none of the, all of them are black. None of them are white. Um, but interestingly, even though 32 of these cases result in convictions, I think, you know, over half of the cases result in convictions, the president of the court martial actually grants all the men clemency oh. saying that it's clear from studying the event that this was actually mismanagement. It was bad leadership. Um, the court martial found that racial slurs had been flung early and often beginning at the bar at the pub. Um, and you'd think that the N-word would not be a deal killer in 1943, but apparently the president of the court-martial wasn't having that. Right. And he used that as evidence that um, uh, it was this was a broader disciplinary problem than a few enlisted men acting up. This was handled badly at all levels. Um, the men got clemency, uh, and there's, I guess there are still bullet holes in the bank across the street today. Huh. But it's an interesting genre of uh, case that was repeated all over the world. There's a, there's a series of these stories of the U.S. trying to, imp- uh, basically U.S. soldiers trying to impose, or the, the Army trying to impose uh, Jim Crow society on other parts of the world that were not having it. Like in this case, you know, the, the proximate cause was not necessarily... Um, I mean, it didn't help that they were with white women, and it didn't, and really didn't help that the villagers were supporting them. You know that in Burgess's story, this was a bar that had put up a black soldiers only sign, and that all the villagers turned with the black soldiers on the MPs. Wait, this is in Burgess's uh, movie? No, sorry, Anthony Burgess of a Clockwork oh, Orange. Oh, okay, okay. No, the the, the nice black kid in, in Burgess Meredith's movie uh, <laughs> did not uh, just just buy cigarettes and leaves the movie. Are yeah. uh, uh, the army like Hollywood not ready for a black leading man? In 1943. But this happened again in Australia in 1942. What's called the Battle of Brisbane was a similar um, bar fight that turned into a military engagement uh, because in this case, there's less of a rate. There's fewer racial overtones. Um, It was more a case of oversexed, overpaid and over here. It was just guys being dopes. And, you know, the British troops got better rations than the Australian troops. They were paid better. They had a bad attitude about it. Um, so it's just a case of having even worse manners than an Australian in an Australian <laughs> bar. And, but, but the, but the racial um, undertones were definitely, I think historians agree, part of this animus between the Australian and the American troops because, you know, they were like the, like the villagers of Bamber bridge, the Australian troops expended, expected to fraternize with both and didn't like it when they were told by the Americans that the the bar should be segregated. And the 1945 one in New Zealand is even more racialized. What's called the Battle of Manners Street in Wellington um, had a bunch of white Americans out at a pub when a an integrated group of New Zealand soldiers come in, both Maori and, and uh, Kiwi Pakeha, like white and Maori soldiers come in together, as they typically were, because there was no segregation in the New Zealand military and much less in society at that time. And the soldiers were like, Oh oh no, we're not going to have that in here. And they're told great impression of a drunk soldier. Thank you. Thank you. They're told to lump it and they eventually take off their belts and say, we're going to, we're going to give these Maoris a hiding if they drink in the same bar with, with us, uh, you know, good white folks. Um, so that turned into a 
bar fight that turned into a punch-up, as you'll imagine. So three countries in which these racially informed bar fights break out because uh, our attempts to export Jim Crow are failing. And you point out that um, it doesn't mean that these were perfectly non-racist societies <laughs> who had beaten it, but they were, I guess, just not at the point of of feeling threatened by black immigration. So it was not a societal problem. What's interesting, you know, there's a there was a movie in 1970 called, uh, it was actually a TV movie called Carter's Army. And it was about, it starred Richard Pryor and uh, Billy D. Williams. Yeah. It was like an ABC movie of the week. And, um, and it was about black soldiers in World War II, but it was done in a black power context. And with I want to see this within the it's movie, been re-released as Black Brigade Black on DVD Brigade, yeah. in, in order to uh, yeah it's got Rosie Greer in it it's like it's this cast is amazing it has Glenn Turman who was almost um who was almost Han Solo and I think was married to Lena Horne is that, am uh, I am I thinking am I remembering right and it's got Robert Hooks from all those Star Trek movies Moses Gunn I want to see this and it's Richard Pryor at his most Richard Pryor you know his early 70s Richard Pryor it's very I um, assume he's the wisecracking he is yeah and and he you know and 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 it covers a lot of this energy but one of the plot points is that in occupied Germany the German like like a German woman is also less less racist than the American soldiers fighting alongside them, right? Like they they take refuge in a house of a of a like a blonde housefrau. How plausible do you find this? Well, you know, it's a polemical film. It's not there. It's not pulling any punches. Pretty astonishing to be an ABC movie of the week with the you know like the uh, the tone of it is is if the, if the upshot is. The, the Germans were better on race in in the late forties than or in the in the early forties than America was. Yeah, so it's I, I mean I recommend watching it. It's it's uh the it's, it doesn't have like modern production values, but it's really it's uh, it's yeah, it's intense. It's intense to see to see a nineteen seventy take on World War II racial politics. Written by Aaron Spelling. It's interesting that you know the Black Power and Black is Beautiful were mainstream enough that Aaron Spelling is pitching is pitching projects to ABC, you know, trying to capture this zeitgeist and this audience. Yeah, and funny, it's, I'm sure that when they pitched it, they were like, "Richard Pryor's really hot right now," and Billy D. Williams. And then the the, the vibe of the movie is, you know, is uh, a little more strident maybe than although you know Richard Pryor's comedy in 1970 was too. So, and this has been. John Roderick's TV movie reviews. Next time, Brian's song. <laughs> and that concludes The Battle of Bamber Bridge. Entry 104.HE1302. Certificate number 53093 in the omnibus. Future links in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at, at Omnibus Project. Our handles, we're at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. I've been sneaking back on social media and I'm ashamed of myself. You were on the Facebook group even. Yeah, don't let me do it. Although there's nothing any of you can do about it. 
I could text you and say, get off the internet. You could. But then you're looking at that on your phone. Yeah, exactly. I should send you a passenger pigeon that says, or a, a messenger pigeon that says, get off the internet. Yeah. If you just like brought me a cookie every time you came, that might be enough. Is that true? You would save the cookie for your moment of temptation later in the week? No. If you brought me a donut or a cookie, something nice, a little treat every time, and then you would have leverage to oh, threaten me, you would say, I'm not going to bring you a donut if I see you on, like, basically bad cop, no donut. I'm going to withhold your, your treat next time. I'm very motivated by treats. I really am, too. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my metabolism has got to the point where I should not be motivated by treats. They fitted me for Jeopardy suits before the pandemic. And? And now they're a little tight. Now you feel them like a, like they're a sausage casing? I look like a, a, a Richard Scary Pig with the buttons on the oh, shirt yeah. at the point of popping. Boing! Yeah, I just pulled three suits out of uh, storage to go to the, uh, to go back east. And I definitely found that I could only take two of them because one of them was no longer. <laughs> That's I'm, a pre-COVID suit. Couldn't squeeze in. So uh, what if instead of a donut, I bring you um, maybe some uh, some hummus and, uh, and 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 raw vegetable platter? Doesn't that sound good, John? You could probably a little baba ganoush. You probably threaten me with that. If you don't get off the internet, I'm going to bring hummus again. Yeah, yeah, that'll not my work. Um, you can email us uh, longer form like rants at theomnibusproject at gmail dot com. Uh, you can go on. Facebook and uh, complain about the show, complain about the fact that, I mean, basically everything we talked about in this show is an opportunity for somebody to complain about the way we handled it. I think we can all get together on race in the 40s as being bad. Yeah, but you know. You can't teach that in schools in half the country. Right. But you know, you and I are pretty glib and people that do not have their tone calibrated correctly might think we were being glib about things. I disagree. I think when we're being glib about other things. I think we have been very clear about the moral imperative here. That's true. We're 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 poking some well-deserved fun at the racists on the front lines of it in this yes. particular case. Yes. I don't think they deserve any particular respect and I don't think Carter's army star Richard Pryor would say any different. But glibness is very hard to parse for some a very small minority of the people in the world but they're a vocal minority. We should program your Alexa here every time we say the word racism or something to say, which is wrong. (laughs) See? So we would just pause and Alexa would say, which is is wrong. wrong. We're against it. We're again it, not for it. Also, is it compatible with Marxism? Yes or no? Which? Exporting Jim Crow? Yeah. Oh, no. Racism is incompatible with with Marxism. Marxism. uh, they, they, They scored big points during the Cold War about how they did. How bad race relations were going. They did. And as we know, Russia, completely without racism. I mean, they were probably killing a bunch of Georgians and Ukrainians and Armenians and all manner of people. Uh, Baltic peoples. Who knows? Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of anti-Estonian racism right now in, in Russia. But it's because Estonia is giving 30% of its GDP to Ukraine. Ooh. Is that, yeah. that going to go bad? Uh, for I Russia. Mean, <laughs> Well, if, if Peter the Great is the model, I mean, they could just move into the Baltics next. That, I think, is why Estonia is giving 30% of their GDP to Ukraine. Better them than us. Um, you can, although we're... 
Are we being glib again? We're doing pretty good about giving Ukraine stuff. I mean, we have a large GDP. Let's be honest. We've given Ukraine... America's pretty killer. As we record this, we're giving Ukraine so much stuff, they like can't get trained on it in time. They yeah. can't get it to the... No, don't shush, 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 because we're going to get letters. Okay. People are going to write to theomnibusproject at gmail.com and tell you, Ken, that you don't know anything about Ukraine. All right. You'll probably tell me that, too. No, I won't. Um, you can mail us things, and I ha- I see here on the desk a package that I that of all the things that you would pay $20 to mail... I can't believe this is the thing that came in the mail. Well, if you'll recall from a, an addenda show, or, uh, maybe back in the spring, I can't remember when this happened. I you were going to say back in the 70s. Almost. Back in the, uh, Yeah, back in the 70s, we did an addenda show about Carter's Army. I remember. Uh, and about whether or not Glenn Turman was married to Lena Horne. I guess I really should look that up. Hey, Google, was, Green, was Glenn Turman married to Lena Horne? Hey, Google. I still don't know. Uh, the, uh, a listener named Jonathan wanted to send us after we did a show about Fanta. Is that right? What told me that as a, he's a new Englander, Aretha Franklin, he was married to Aretha Franklin. Oh, there you go. There we go. Those of you who have been yelling at me for like it's 20 Aretha. minutes, stand down. It's Aretha Franklin. Uh, but he was almost Han Solo and he's the mayor in the wire. The, uh, a listener named Jonathan from New England wanted to send us his own part of the world's Diet Pepper, Diet Dr. Pepper equivalent, delicious Diet Moxie. What is his part of the world? Freaking New England. He's from New Hampshire. Moxie, I believe, is a Maine invention. Yeah. It's one of the many fine regional sodas of Maine. Does it get across the border into New Brunswick? Unclear. We may never know. What's interesting about Maine is they have pretty good seafood. But I would not turn to them for pop. Is that right? You wouldn't order a lobster roll and then say, and I'd like a real kind of Dr. Pepper with a bitter aftertaste. Here's what's crazy. They sent a half rack of Diet Moxie. I think he knows I'm a Diet Dr. Pepper drinker. Ergo, this would be the closest Maine equivalent. Here I am, right here. He's got that famous Maine hospitality. He does. The famous Maine hospitality. You would rather drink a full sugar Moxie, of course. I would drink, right now I would try a full sugar Moxie, but I will not try a Diet Moxie. We talked about the the creepy druggist leering at you like Peter Laurie on the can. There he is. Uh... He, at the time, he was asking for a, a, a home address for one of us because you can't Ooh, the, say... The weird uh, yes, Peter, Peter Lorre? Yeah, the ghost of Peter Lorre. John, where do you live? <laughs> I'm going to come to your house. No, he... Uh, Jonathan wanted to send it... He, you, apparently, he thought you couldn't send Pop to a P.O. box, and maybe that's true. Maybe it is. How did he get around it? A listener sent in a life hack, which is do not send it to... P.O. Box, blah, blah, blah. 55744 Shoreline, Washington, 98155. You can always send stuff there, but not if it's pop. If you want a street address, look up the street address of our um, of that particular North City Seattle post office and send it there to apartment number 55744. As if on that part of Aurora, there is an apartment building with 55,000 units. Interesting. So, and then not knowing that it's a P.O. Box... The post office will deliver it, and presumably at the end, they'll be like, we've been foiled Guard. by this apartment P.O. Box scheme. Well, wait a minute. Now let's, uh, P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline. What are you trying to find? Do you want the street address yeah. of that? It's the North City Post Office. Let me uh, see. Oh, wow. The first thing that comes up is your name at fanmail.biz. 
Uh, see, this is why this is why that box is full of people wanting me to sign their their baseball cards oh, and I Alex see. Trebek Funko Pops. Um, so it's not this one in Montlake Terrace. No, that's something. No, wrong. that's some kind of annex. Oh no, no, there's a post office in Montlake Terrace. I used to live up there. It's um one eight three three six Aurora Avenue, Suite one hundred five. So the post office has to believe this is a both has a suite and an apartment number, and that the apartment number is five digits. All right, say that again. Let me write it down. One eight three three six Aurora Avenue North. What are you Aurora trying to have people send you? Avenue. No. Well, I'm I'm just suggesting Suite One Hundred Five. Suite One Hundred Five. And somehow this single suite has about fifty six thousand apartments because it's then apartment number five five seven four four. And and nine eight one five five. Apartment number. Well, what I'm trying to do is if there is a way to to uh, to game this system, why do we ever give them the P.O. box? Why don't we always just say, send us your stuff to 18336 Aurora Avenue North, Suite 105, apartment 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. What if they get wise to us? What if they, what if they see what we're doing? I think we need to limit this to emergency cases like when we need uh, 12 Diet Moxies. Well, okay, I understand. I understand what you're saying. Now these have not traveled well. Maybe this is the reason why you don't. Well, that one's kind of exploded. They're all kind of exploded. Maybe this is the reason why you don't send. Oh, because Diet Moxie to the. Yeah, it went up in an airplane. Yes. And then it, I'm, they're lucky it didn't explode. They they just popped. They just got big, but they didn't blow. Are we ready to take the Diet Moxie challenge here? Oh my God! Do you Are think we it's, really going to do you think do it's this? still under pressure? It can't be, right? Uh-huh. The, the top of mine is so warped. There we go. Okay. Diet Moxie. I really don't want this, but... No, take a swig. It's going to be delicious. Here we go. Yep. Smells like root beer slash medicine. The first bite... The first um, the first taste is root beer. And then... And the then it quickly becomes cough Aspartame. Medicine. The problem is... I, I don't, can't. I don't mind that. Now that I've opened this, I can't put it down because the bottom's all round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have to do what they do in Maine and just chug it and then smash it against your forehead. That's how you drink a diet moxie in, in uh, the pine tree. State. Well, now look the uh, the the initial taste I really like it. It it's a nice combination of kind of root beer. It's a less Dr. sweet Pepper. root beer. I would totally drink this if it was if it didn't have. But aspartame as an aftertaste. Well, but the the bitter taste you're not getting is not the aspartame. Aspartame's nature's own deliciousness what you're oh tasting is gentian root no no i like the root i don't like this the fake sugar okay the fake sugar you can probably taste but do you know how like now you have a bitter taste in your mouth from this like you've been like you just woke up from a ill-advised i have a 30 minute nap bitter taste in my mouth because this person sent us diet moxie instead of regular moxie. that's a bitter taste in your soul yeah. the bitter taste in your mouth is gentian root which is added to moxie specifically to give you that bitter medicinal taste that Mainers crave, uh-huh. the, the down easters love. But you know, as an American, I love my pop to taste like medicine, mm. which is a thing that all those Fanta drinkers in Germany can't understand. It is funny how it tastes like root beer for a second, then cough Some, syrup for another second, yeah. and then like something died for about a minute. <laughs> this, this is perfect. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you. And also, I can't remember the unnamed listener uh, who told us about this. Um, I bet they to, have a name. To way to thwart the P.O. box. Unnamed in this entry. <laughs> Not unnamed in real life. <laughs> One of the rare Americans that never got a name. Yeah, it's a sovereign citizens thing. Uh-huh. They can't pull you over for your post office related, for your mail fraud, for your mail soda fraud, if your name begins with a vowel and two consonants or something. 
Um, let me just add that if you do not have the wherewithal to send a case of Diet Moxie through the mails, but you would like to support the show. Is there a second way to support the show besides sending us regional diet sodas? Yes. You can go to patreon.com slash omnibus and join our omnibus cadre. You can't set that down. It's explodimented. Uh, I'm kind of leaning it on a corner between two things and oh, nothing could go wrong. That's going to work. Is this why, is this why popcans don't have rounded bottoms? So that you can put them down on a table? Yes. Live and learn. <laughs> that's one. I'm sure when they were designing cans, they were like, why don't we put a, 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 like a graceful round bottom on this can? They need to weight this like a weeble. So it, so it'll wobble in a fun way. Oh, what a good idea. You know, if the bottom were just thicker, it could be rounded. Yeah. That's what, that's what you want out of a can for it to be like a, like a weeble. I'm going to have to drink all this and I'm always turning it. So the weird guy faces me as I take a sip. Oh, in fact, it seems to be set up that way. It's look, meant to do Look that. how he's right be- on my case. He's right below the lip of the, the, the I think pop top. Might be coincidence. Uh, Patreon.com slash omnibus project and join the cadre of uh, futurelings who support the show. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, however, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.